Hello and welcome to Mindfulness Man. This episode, I'm speaking to Nate Clem. He's a New York Times best-selling author, and he specializes in the area of mindfulness. I'm here today with Dr. Nate Klemp. He's a New York Times best-selling author, and amongst other things, a vital part of the world popular Mindful magazine. Welcome, Nate. And it's great to meet you at last. How are you today? Chris, it's so good to meet you. What your listeners probably don't know is that we've known each other for two years, but have never had a conversation. So this is really exciting for me. I didn't realize it was so long. That's incredible. This should have happened before. Yeah, I think it's been a couple of years. Wow. So, um... Can you tell us about your work with Mindful Magazine? Because that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, the backstory here is that I used to be an academic. I was a professor of political philosophy because I thought philosophy was going to give me a set of tools for living philosophically, living deeper, living a better life. That ended up not exactly panning out for me. I found that there was not a whole lot of living philosophy. There was a lot of studying, writing about philosophy, trying to get tenure. That was kind of the business there. So about 15 years ago, I left my job as an academic and I started a company called Life Cross Training with my co-founder, Eric Langsher. And that was one of the early mindfulness training programs for companies. So we would go into law firms and consulting firms and basically bring mindfulness coaching and some of these tools to the corporate workplace. And then several years ago, we merged our business, Life Cross Training, with Mindful Magazine, realizing that we could be more powerful together. They had built this amazing magazine and media infrastructure. We had a training program. So at that point, those those two entities merged and sort of became one and the same. So that's the the genesis of my work there. I didn't actually start Mindful Magazine. That was Barry Boyce and Jim Gimian, who are two amazing figures in the movement of contemporary mindfulness. Um, but we we sort of came at it from this other corporate training angle and then realized our work really aligned quite nicely. Excellent. It's so um, funny hearing what you said there about studying philosophy so you could work out life. I had that very thought around a swimming pool in Ibiza. I went to live in Ibiza with my friends and I'm just sitting around a pool saying, what do I do with my life? And my thought was, if I study philosophy, that Mm. will show me a way how to live. I didn't in the end, but it was just amazing to hear that you'd had the same reflection. Well, you were much smarter than I. It sounds like you had the insight earlier on. But I really did have this sense that, at least when I was in college and I looked at the menu of options available to me, philosophy felt like it had the richest content and, and sort of the deepest level of analysis of life. And I was really interested in people like Emerson and Nietzsche and, you know, 
a lot of the sort of 19th century thinkers. So it's not that philosophy was a totally dead end path for me. There was so much that I learned through philosophy. I learned how to think. I learned how to write. I learned how to just be a more rigorous uh, intellectual, I guess you could say. But when it came to the actual experience of human flourishing, the way that philosophy is practiced today, where you you know are competing against fellow grad students for a very scarce number of jobs and you're in the library all day for 12 to 14 hours, that turned out not to be very conducive to living a rich contemplative life. <laughs> for me anyway, maybe for other people, it's great. Yeah, I, I can um, relate to that completely. And yeah. that's, that brings you round to, um, you know, your study of tantric Buddhism, which um, you used in your coming book, Open, and you looked at how the indulgence of something that's apparently negative can yield wisdom. So you did this self-study, according to your book. So can you speak a little bit about that, how we can take these apparently negative things and turn them into something beneficial? So one of the things I was really interested in exploring in the context of this book project, Open, is this feeling that I think many of us are having now in our modern age that when some sort of discomfort arises in the mind or the body, there's this almost instantaneous urge to pick up our phone, our screen. It's almost like an adult pacifier of sorts. And so there are all sorts of great strategies for how we can use our screen less, you know, uh, self-binding strategies they're often called. And I, I think those are important and useful, but they're all based on this idea of restraint and abstinence of like pushing away the phone. So as you mentioned in, in the tantric Buddhist tradition, there's an alternative way of thinking about craving, which is to say, what if you were to overindulge intentionally and mindfully in your deepest cravings? So often in, in tantric Buddhist practice, this is done with things like sex or drinking or food, often called feast practice. But I had the thought, well, my primary vice right now is this urge to seek out digital distraction. So what would happen if I just went all in to my digital distraction? So I spent three days, just like all day, every day, consuming this endless buffet of digital distraction with no restraint, no restriction. And it felt kind of amazing, but there were a few things I learned as a result. One, the experiment completely destroyed my sleep. So each night I would wake up at like 2.45, could not go back to sleep. Second, I started to feel all sorts of weird physical symptoms, headaches, things like that, mild dizziness, disorientation. But the thing I really learned through this is after the experiment, I woke up the day after and I had the thought, this is when I usually pick up my phone and for the first time in a decade, that desire just completely fell flat. Like it wasn't even there. And what I had realized, what I realized in that moment is that 
our phone's primary superpower is this experience of novelty, of getting something new, you know, like a new set of texts or new emails or new fresh feed on Instagram. We experienced a technical hitch here. Bandwidth, I think. My connection seemed to drop out. And there's too much really good material there. So excuse the space and we will continue. We were just getting to something quite interesting there, actually. And that was how your overindulgence actually made you not want to indulge further. So you'd had enough. It was almost like eating too much chocolate. You get to a point where you just can't face it anymore. So did a similar thing happen with your phone? Absolutely. And in some ways, it reminds me of that old school parenting advice. If you catch your kid smoking cigarettes, mm -hmm. have them finish the pack or you make them smoke two packs. And I think that's similar to the tantric idea here, which is that when we're trying to resist something like our screens, there's just this, there's a way in which the resistance, I think, can almost fuel the craving because it's yeah. like this thing we can't have, you know, it's off limits. It's, it's a, it's this delightful indulgence that we won't allow ourselves to, to go fully into. And so I think by running an experiment like this, which I actually think would be interesting for your listeners to do, assuming you don't have serious addiction issues with your screen for a day or so, by running an experiment like that, you get to just drop the resistance. Yeah, definitely. I think that could be so valuable. I myself did it with alcohol. Many years ago, I'd just gotten into Buddhist practice and I wanted to quit drinking. I wasn't an alcoholic or anywhere close, but I was drinking every night, you know, just a few beers. And I'd get myself to, to sort of a, you know, the fuzzy head. I'd go to bed like slightly, ever so slightly inebriated. And one day I just said to myself, how does this feel? Do I like this feeling? And the answer was no, um, because I had almost fetishized it. And I think that's almost what you're saying. It's like, if we can't have something, if we think something's wrong, we crave it more. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Great. So um, I'd like to talk now about spirituality. And I feel like in doing what you just did, you're bringing the um, spiritual aspect back into the mindfulness arena, because I think there's an over-secularization of mindfulness, and it can lead to a sterile practice, and therefore it can yield far fewer fruits. So I just wonder what your take is on that. That's such an interesting and important question because you're right. The way in which we talk about mindfulness for the most part these days, at least in the popular press, popular discussion, is as a secular practice that's science-backed, 
that has no real connection to religious traditions or to any sense of the divine, any sort of mystical basis to it. And I think to a certain extent, that's good. So we talked about Mindful Magazine and my previous experience with LifeXT. We were really intentional in both of those ventures to be very secular in our presentation of mindfulness. And that was because we knew for many people, it's a very helpful on-ramp if you sort of describe the practice without some of those mystical characteristics. It's just easier to sort of get on board with the idea of the practice. But I think that that on-ramp can sort of, as you're saying, have this austere and empty feeling to it at a certain point. So that's where I think there is really a place for a discussion of meditation and mindfulness practice. You know, once once somebody has explored that secular on-ramp that's a little bit richer and that touches on some of those deeper, more mystical foundations of the practice. And that was one of the interesting things actually in writing this book, Open, is that this was the first time for me as a writer that I had ever written about that dimension of the practice. I had usually been so careful to, to like block it out, not talk about it, not write about it, didn't want to alienate anyone. But this was a, an instance where I felt like I needed to go deeper into that more spiritual side of the practice. Excellent. And so are you personally, do you consider your own practice as spiritual? Absolutely. I think for me, this practice is the deepest form of spiritual practice that, that certainly I've ever experienced. I grew up as a Christian and then got very disenchanted with the church. And really, once I ended up in graduate school and in, in an academic institution, I picked up this almost like deep skepticism of any sort of spiritual practice or religious faith. And then at a certain point, that all shattered for me. I actually had a, a pretty severe bike accident about 10 years ago where I got a, a concussion and experienced some really intense anxiety and depression in the aftermath of that. And while that was very difficult and painful and I wouldn't wish it on anyone, there was a way in which hitting that place where I could no longer control my life, could no longer control my mind, it almost like opened a space in me for seeing my life and seeing my practice and seeing just like the world in a more spiritual framework. And so that for me is really where that that opened up and and that's become just a really important part of my my mindset since then. I think that's what's hap what happens to us, isn't it? Um I I noticed you speaking of um in your book about catastrophic thoughts, how mm. you keep getting thoughts of is this cancer? And I myself, I've totally been through that. And the reason is I was in my early 30s diagnosed with a precancerous condition. And 
it messed my mind up pretty badly. I'd look at my children and I'd think, I'm not going to see you grow up and things like that. Because obviously I went onto the internet and I looked at statistics and they're very skewed. And I found that out later. But for a long time, I was in a serious trauma. But the result of that, the flip side of that, I dove so deeply into my practice that a death experience actually happened, which was incredibly life-affirming. So that leads me on to um, your use of psychedelic-assisted therapy, your journey with it. And I love how you speak of the snake appearing and how all the dark, horrible moments you actually managed to view as good, what you called an inversion perspective. And so much is written on PTSD, yet nobody seems to have heard of the other side, post-traumatic growth. So I'd love you to talk through um, this experience you had, how that unfolded and anything that you're left with wisdom-wise as a result. Well, first of all, Chris, I want to just thank you for bringing up your own example there. That's such a rich example that I think we can all relate to of having a condition like that that just almost forces you to go deeper into some sort of spiritual practice or tradition. So thank you for that. And then I love the question about psychedelic assisted therapy. Interestingly, when I was first coming up with the idea for this book, I had no interest in taking or writing about psychedelics because I had just seen so many psychedelic experiences gone wrong in family members and friends with pretty severe lasting consequences. And so as I started to think about this book, I, I, I began contemplating, well, you know, do, do psychedelics have a role here? And what really shifted my mind was this realization that there is this essential distinction between psychedelics, the compounds themselves, and the pairing of these compounds with an intentional structure of support and therapy, so often called psychedelic-assisted therapy. And that, for me, was really an opening where I thought, okay, that feels like it could mitigate the risk of these compounds enough for me to really explore this as a viable path to opening the mind. And so I did end up doing psychedelic assisted therapy for a couple of years. I'm still doing this occasionally um, with a woman here in town who's the head of psychedelic studies at Naropa University. And you're absolutely right. This inversion perspective, I think, was the deepest insight I got. And, and just to give you another example, I've had a fear of flying for about 20 years, really since 9-11 happened. And it's never really gone away. You know, I've meditated on it. I've meditated on takeoff and landing for years and years and years. And then I had this experience during one of these ketamine-assisted therapy sessions where I felt like I was on this plane. It, it wasn't a real plane, obviously. It was just in my mind. But I felt like I was on this plane and for the first time ever, I was just in love with airplanes. There's nowhere I'd rather be. And then all of a sudden 
I had this experience of the plane crashing to the ground and watching myself just annihilated in the flames. And it was like a work of art. It was like watching, mm-hmm. you know, God, God herself. And, and so for me, what, what I learned through that is that these compounds coupled with support and integration and therapy can give us access to places in our psyche that are so traumatized and so dark that there's really nowhere to, there's no way to go there in our ordinary consciousness. And that I think is the profound value to your point. There's a opportunity here to turn trauma into something more like growth. I love what Larry Rosenberg um, says in one of his books. He says that in Dharma practice, a bad situation is a good situation. Mm. And, and that kind of, for me, it's that it's the whole mindful thing of everything of equanimity of everything holding value. And we can look at these in these dark corners of our mind and realize that there's so much fruit for our growth there. And I think that's what the psychedelics probably as well, the years and years of meditation have given you. Yeah. And I, I love that you talked about both of those together because Mm. I think psychedelic experiences and psychedelic assisted therapy can give us these amazing moments of opening, but then you wake up the next morning, you read the news, you have to drag your trash cans out to the curb or whatever, right? You go, you go back to the non-psychedelic world and all of a sudden we need a different set of practices. And that's where I think these two go together so nicely that the meditation may not be as, as exciting. It may not have as many fireworks to it, but it is this practice of just sort of this everyday training of the mind to be a little bit more relaxed into things as they are. And, and so the two pair really well together. And honestly, I can't even imagine having a psychedelic experience without having some other practice like meditation that helps to integrate that into just the, the sort of humdrum flow of everyday life. Yeah, absolutely. They, they do work perfectly. In fact, there's a book, um, and I think it's quite a bit of a movement. Um, it's called Zigzag Zen. And mm. it talks about um, psychedelic use because, of course, in Buddhism, officially, it's um, not allowed. <laughs> That's right. Um, but they do. They, they marry up so perfectly. And going on to um, opening up the mind and heart, um, I'd like to come on to my next point, and I don't want to get political here, um, but this year and the last year, I've heard of and seen the most monstrous expressions of hatred on the news. It's really disturbingly barbaric. And I thought we'd outgrown these things. A previous me um, used to get much more disturbed at events that that are happening. And I feel as if we've been desensitized and almost forced to close because now I can see this stuff and be less touched, even with my practice. 
So I just wondered your book open because it's about opening the mind. Um, now in Buddhism, there's chitta, which they put the heart and mind together. So do you touch on the heart opening along with the mind as well? So we can become more compassionate and have you got anything to say on that, on how the book addresses that? Absolutely. I love that you brought up the political realm because I think we're all struggling with that right now. That I like to say closure isn't just an internal phenomenon. It's not just that we're closing down to discomfort or difficult emotions. We're closing down to each other to anybody who votes for the opposite candidate or has a different set of beliefs than we do. And this is pretty well documented in the research on political polarization, that this is happening and it's getting worse by the year. And so one of the things that I think we can do to open the mind and our heart, because I think you're right, those two go together, is to change the way in which we experience what I would call the other or the enemy. And for each of us, that's going to look different, right? If you're on the left, you're going to have a different set of enemies than if you're on the right. But one of the things I did that was maybe one of the most mind-opening experiences for this project is I realized that for me, my enemy that I was really closed down to was anyone who had a sort of pro-gun ideology. You know, I, I'm sort of a left of center person. I believe in in gun control, you know, and and not not allowing everybody to walk around with firearms strapped to themselves. So I decided to create an experience for myself where I actually found a National Rifle Association training here in the U.S. in rural Colorado, where I spent the day getting my concealed carry permit. And it was just this wild experience because I... I viewed it almost like a psychedelic experience in the <laughs> sense that I knew it was going to be totally out of control, but I also set it up in such a way where I wanted to approach the people I interacted with in a different way from my ordinary habituation. So I wanted to really try to understand and listen rather than go in there with my own agenda and tell them they should all be pro gun control and guns are bad or whatever. And it was just this amazing experience because in the end, I did have that experience of my heart really opening that I, I learned that these people who I viewed as the enemy were really just like me in so many ways, doing their best, and that we're just caught in the smokescreen of all this siloed media and the algorithms of our favorite social media platform they make it seem like these people are, you know, some sort of deranged enemy, you know, bad people who want to destroy the country and destroy the world. So I, I think anytime we can come directly into contact with people we see as, as the enemy or the problem and really get to understand them, that goes a long way to unwinding some of that closure. Absolutely. And I, I would add to that as well, that the only chance you ever have of getting them to change their perspective is making them feel listened to and understood and i think what you did then is incredibly wise both for yourself and your own development mm. you said it opened your heart 
but also for them because they're going to get to know you and they're going to finally listen. So to scream at someone in their face that, you know, if you're a vegan, that they're eating meat and that's wrong and that's just going to make them eat more meat. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I was thinking about if I had gone into that experience and just started, you know, promoting my point of view, yelling at them for being wrong, like the outcome would have been totally the opposite. I wouldn't have had any of that experience at all. It wouldn't have even been available. Absolutely. And to see the humanity in these people again, because we are being divided. It's so obvious. And I think I think what you did is incredibly healing for society. And if we all did it, you know, we could we can I, I don't live in um hope of, you know, some perfect world, but that's the closest we're going to get to it if we start listening to each other. Yeah, and there is this principle that I think we're all familiar with if we're meditating of basic goodness. You know, it's a, one of the foundational principles in a lot of Buddhist schools. Just this idea that we're all basically good. And to do any sort of practice like that where we can see that, especially among those people who we see as the problem, is just, yeah. you know, why not? Yeah, in loving kindness, um, when I teach that, people seem reluctant to send loving kindness to enemies. Mm. And then when they let go of that and they actually do it, that's the area where they find their own, more of their own personal transformation. Because it's like yeah. us holding back that for other people harms us. It doesn't really change them at all. Absolutely. I'd like as well, um, we've got five minutes left. I just wondered if you could um, run us through um, a short practical um, part of your book, one, one of the guided meditations, even if it's just for a few minutes. I don't know if you'd like to do that or you'd like to send that as a separate file. Yeah, I think we could do just a couple minutes and... This would be just a very basic open awareness practice that you could do in formal meditation or even better. I like to talk about those informal spaces where we bring our practice to the line at the grocery store or the line at the airport or the airplane, all those chaotic environments. So okay. to start this, yeah, to start this practice, we're going to keep our eyes open and you might just notice the weight of your body in your chair, your feet on the floor. And we'll start with just a moment of focused attention, breathing practice, which we're probably all familiar with, where you're paying attention to the sensation of breath. The tip of the nose is a nice spot here. So our attention is narrow here on the sensations of breathing. Eyes open. And then slowly allow the scope of your attention to expand. So allow it to move from the tip of your nose throughout your whole head 
down your neck, torso, legs. So just slightly expanding the field of our awareness to include our whole body. And then allow even that to expand. So allow your awareness to expand such that it encompasses your whole visual field. And you're just lightly gazing at whatever happens to be in front of you. Feeling the edges of awareness expand, seeing this moment in panoramic awareness. Hearing this moment in panoramic awareness. And just noticing that this bigger view is always available. We can do it in our meditation practice. We can do it in the midst of everyday life. So I would say we could bring that practice to a close, but you could even see if you can finish this podcast in that bigger, more panoramic perspective. When is the book ready and where can listeners connect with you? Yeah, the book will be out on February 13. And best way to find me is nateklemp.com, K-L-E-M-P. It's my website. I'm also on Instagram at Nate underscore Klemp. Thank you to the patrons of this podcast. That's Anita Gwatney, Michael Polam, Claire Jenkins, Diane Klocek and Jake Sand.